This is Seek Bytes, the software engineering podcast by Seek.com. Join our experts as they share their thoughts on tips on mastering the craft of code. From career advice to technical deep dives, Seek Bytes is the podcast for software engineers by software engineers. Welcome to Seek Bites. Today on the podcast, we have Seamus and Rena. Hello. Howdy. Hi. How are you all today? Pretty good. That's Not too shabby. Good. good. Yeah, so today we have a bit of a different podcast. There's no real topic on this one. Usually we try and get a topic in advance, but uh, today's a bit of a mixed bag. Today we've kind of scoured the internet uh, to find some topics. Um, and I'm just kind of kind of bring them up and see what sort of discussions we can make. I think some of them are pretty interesting. And the first one... Um, do you guys know what a TLD is? No. Too, too long, don't? Yeah, yeah, right? That's what I thought too. <laughs> too long, don't read. Yeah. Too long, don't <laughs> what? TLD, it just don't. No, oh. this one is, um, it's, it's, so I, I only knew what it was in relation to this context. So the, the topic of this or the title of this was the dot .zip TLD sucks and it needs to be immediately revoked. What do you think that means? Dot .zip TLD sucks. Let me get what a TLD actually... So top-level domain is what TLD means. Uh, okay. So we're talking about .com, .au, .org and stuff like that. So recently, uh, Google have started uh, putting .zip and .mov as a valid top-level domain. So you can actually buy a .zip domain now. Whoa. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Which which is insane. And so here is... So there is a, a bit of a... If you go on... So the, the website is financialstatements.zip. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a real website you can go on and it actually talks about the ramifications of this and why it's a problem. And it does kind of uh, say, it doesn't talk good things about Google as well. It kind of uh, berates them a little bit. But the, t- the top comment on this is, let me read it out and I'll kind of ask what you guys think of this. So it is, um, I feel like most people in the comments are not understanding the mechanism that makes this potentially problematic. I will admit that the author of the website focused primarily on disdain for a particular corporation. That doesn't help clarify the point. But a significant amount of software automatically converts parts of text that appear to be URLs, even without an explicit protocol, into clickable links. This includes mail clients, messengers, internet forums, etc. And until now, such software would convert hello.com into a clickable link. Sinks.com is a valid top-level domain. Um, But would leave hello.zip as is since obviously it's not. This won't change overnight, but gradually it will. And as software libraries are updated with the current latest list of top-level domains, this means that soon, whenever anyone mentions a .zip file, uh, whether in a message or a post or something, it will inadvertently become a link. To the reader, this will appear as if the author intentionally linked the file to assist the reader in finding it. Example, uh, then you need to download document-backup.zip from our intranet portal. Uh, so they'll click the link expecting to download the file. Now, the problem is as an attacker, all you have to do is register documents-backup.zip to a domain, upload a malicious zip to the file root, and it'll just start downloading. Uh, the individual clicking the link expects the zip to be downloaded, and it will, but it'll be a malicious third-party file, not from the author. So as a result, we get a trusted source inadvertently linking to a malicious file, which is very different to some of the scenarios. What do you think about this? This is like big news security-wise. I think like, yeah, zip files and just like downloading software, I think could, I, it's just another potential way a hacker could, you know, get you to download bad things. 
It sounds very problematic. I'm, I'm, it's kind of shocking that Google would... Because you said Google is the one they're like going to start hosting these domains, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I guess it, it seems strange to me that a company as big as Google wouldn't be able to see the obvious downfall that's being highlighted there in mm-hmm. that article. Who, wrote, who was that article from? There is no author on this one. I think this person wants to rename, remain anonymous. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is just, the, I mean, the thread, it was linked on Reddit. Mm-hmm. And this comment was by someone else, but the the website itself, okay. there's no no author I can see on it. Yeah, right. Interesting. It's definitely dangerous because .zip is like, I think even non technical people would see it as like, oh, it's just a file. I'll need to download that, and mm. then have no idea mm. that something has happened on the laptop. Yeah, a hundred percent. I agree. I think from and like I usually try and stay pretty up to date with like. Security. I feel. I feel like I'm usually pretty good at not being caught by scammers. Mm. I think I've seen a lot of them. Watch a lot of the YouTube videos of scammers getting caught. And and but this one probably would have got me because a dot zip file. I I never would have assumed that could be kind of just hijacked by someone. Yeah, it seems weird to me just to, I guess, co-opt existing file names to use for mm. domain t- TLDs. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to use the acronym now. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, why? That's I. I'm struggling to wrap my head around how that seems like a reasonable thing to do. Like, Did Google publish anything about this? Yeah, right. Why dot zip? What was yeah, their reasoning? That's that's a really great question. Let me let me see if I can find out. Oh, get up to speed with dot zip. There you go on Google Domains, TLDR forward slash zip, starting at fifteen dollars a year. The web moves at high speed. So how so how you do two with a zip domain? When you're offering services where speed is of the essence, a .zip URL lets your audience know that you're fast, efficient, and ready to move. What? That wasn't what I was expecting at all. Trying to play on the word zippy. Wow. And of course, there, there is also .mov, which typically is like a, a video file, right? Yeah. So are they literally trying to make TLDs be some kind of like clarifier for what this site is doing? Yeah, but it sounds like an ad for sign up for this domain because yeah, yeah, the name will suggest something else. Yeah, uh, this for the for the MOV one. It is uh, whether you're a filmmaker, editor, or video blogger, your .mov URL is the perfect home to share your reel, show some shorts, or just talk about the latest screens or any sites. This one's more about filmmaking and movies and stuff like that, which makes sense. But like, uh, so I don't know. So does that mean if you want to buy a .mov domain? It has to be relating to videos and stuff. I, I doubt they will. No, I think, I don't think so. How do you enforce that, right? Once someone's yeah. bought that URL or they're renting it, I guess, how do you enforce the content that they put on it? Why would you enforce the content? And it kind of makes the purpose of that thing redundant if anyone can, well, I mean, that's how it works right now. Anyone can use anything for their domain, right? Like you don't have to be a .com. That's you don't right. have to be a .com.au. Like, look at where we're doing, shifting from .au to .com. True. From, like, an SEO perspective, um, that means that all – if you want to have really good search engine optimization, then all of your um, subdomains would have to fall under that core top-level domain. So, like, are you doing a .mov for a single movie or are you doing all – like, I don't mm. – this seems very – this perplexes me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think specifically for, like, some of these, like – I mean, dot .mov for movies. I mean, you could have... It's not, like, governed by anyone, right? Whereas, I f- like, .gov. Right. I, like, I feel like that's something governed. I don't think anyone can just get a .gov domain, as far as I'm aware. That's a question I want to answer now. I don't know. 
Yeah, uh, let's let's take a look. Actually, for, and for one, I, I used to do um, more like IT sort of work where I would have to go and get a lot of domains for people. And there are domains like um, like country-specific domains. Those ones you do need to go through a registry and say you have a company in this like uh, in this country and it's stuff. So you can't always just get like a Philippines domain unless you have a company there. Um, so I found that interesting, but I don't know about .orgs. Uh, let me take a quick look. So I just did a little uh, Google just to double check about .gov ones, and there's a story at least about in the US, someone who was able to register a .gov domain, um, but it did require them to do some illegal things. They had to impersonate a mayor through email. <laughs> wow. So there is a an, an administration called the US General Services Administration. That is the federal agency responsible for managing .gov domains uh, and registration. So... I would assume that if the US has some kind of yes. governing body for registering .gov, that we would probably have something like that mm -hmm. because it would be really, like, I think that would be too misleading. So I guess this is just kind of like falling into the same bucket with .zip and .mov and stuff, right? Because they're starting to make URLs look like file names. It's it's that trust, right? Like .gov, yep. you'd expect it to be a government site. .zip, you'd expect it to be a zipped file. Mm. .mov, you'd expect it to be a video file. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're going to a URL, like you don't know what that what touching that website can do to, you, to the machine, yeah. right? But also right now, we're like one of the tips for avoiding scams is to look at the URL and make sure mm -hmm. that it's a legitimate one. Mm. And so you're kind of trained to like look at where the website's, yep. you know, mm -hmm. like some people might just pretend to be OzPost and put a, a full stop instead of a dash. I actually don't know what the domain is. <laughs> yep. um, something else to mislead you. So if you put a dot .zip there, you just can't tell. That's right. I've had a look. Apparently, there are some. So this, there's a website called Namebase. Um, .js and .txt are now live. Learn about the first two TLD registries launched on the Handshake DNS protocol. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it looks like, yeah, you can perhaps get other file names as well. JS, TXT. I'm just curious, like, how, how many more there, there already are. Because I've only learned about .zip and .mov this morning. And to me, that's the first like file name, top level domain that I've Ooh. heard. But I, I feel like that might not just be the only one. We're kind of just targeting Google because it's the newest news. But yeah, I mean, so you just mentioned the Handshake DNS protocol. Mm -hmm. Just a quick Google. Uh, Handshake is a decentralized permissionless naming protocol where every peer is validating and in charge of managing the root DNS naming zone with the goal of creating an alternative to existing certificate authorities and naming systems. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that means in terms of making sure that these um, domains aren't malicious. It's just talking about validating them, right? Like validating them is another thing to making sure that they're not doing something malicious. Mm -hmm. So like where does that trust come from? Like the reason we have CAs, uh, certificate authorities, is so that we have some body that's trustworthy, right? As like, mm. you know that if this certificate came from a trustworthy source, mm. your machine will just trust it by default, right? Yeah. That's why you get the warning when you're browsing, like this is this domain uses an untrusted, untrusted certificate. Um, so how, I, don't, I don't understand how it's, it's like Bitcoin for de like <laughs> certificate authorities, right? Yeah. It's, uh, they've decentralized it. Okay. I'm curious what that actually means in practice in terms of how does this mean that there's some level of confidence we can have over these .zip domains, over mm. these file name domains? Yeah, that is interesting. And, and that kind of gets me interested as well That because I, I know this was a while ago and maybe correct me if someone knows that this has changed, but there were some browsers that were hiding like the full URL of something. They would just show um, 
like the just the main domain google.com and i feel like in in an instance like this you would just get like file dot you know zip as the domain and hiding some of the more important details there that could make it something malicious um so yeah i'm i'm not sure i just it just feels like kind of going backwards with some of the security stuff <laughs> to to stop people getting hacked i don't know what it means to kind of decentralize a ca what's a ca again something authority certificate certificate authority yeah. that's right yep like godaddy and google and stuff like that that's right yeah 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 i mean this feels like uh we should probably dive into this as a, an individual topic i think mm -hmm. i would be curious mm -hmm. to see if we've got some security experts at cq yeah, would be keen to talk about this because i feel like i feel like this is something that a lot of people would benefit from knowing about and understanding especially if we're going to see like a lot of these urls start to pop up it could be like another security thing people have to be aware of yeah i like it So the next thing on my list, um, so this is um, this is more, I feel like, of an opinion of someone. And so maybe I'll just read it out and see what you guys think. Uh, this is relating to um, job interviews and stuff. Uh, so this is, um, there should never be coding exercise in technical interviews. It favors people who have time to do them. Disfavors people with FT jobs and families. Plus, your job won't have people over your shoulder watching your code. That is just an out, that, that is uh, a quote from someone from treating devs like being humans, uh, treating devs like human beings. Wow, um, there's, a, there's a panel from that. So that is, that is a quote. Well, yeah, what are, you, what are your opinions on, on technical interviews and code tests and, and stuff like that? I've been fairly involved in the grad program at Seek in terms of the recruiting and the whole hiring process and, um, you know, figuring out who the best candidates are and that kind of thing. And part of that process is, well, actually, I've also been involved in the central hiring for Seek as well. So kind of looking at principal level, senior level, mid-dev, grad, all the way through. I think the coding exercises make a lot of sense across the board. I think that they're much more difficult to do and get a true, like, honest interpretation of that person's ability to code when it's live and you're watching them, which is how we have done it during the central hiring process. We usually have two people pairing together um, and working through. At, but that's the intention for that is more of a pair programming exercise. So we're, we're looking at how the person works with other people on programming challenges, not their programming ability. When we do programming challenges, and I think that we do it well, you're given the challenge and there's no time limit in the actual UI and there's nothing that's counting down that's like stopping you at a certain point, which is as soon as you add stress, someone's ability to think and solve problems just goes out the window, like for a lot of people at least anyway. What we do is we give you that coding challenge and then you've got a week to do it. So if you've got a full-time job, you can do it Monday. You can do a little bit Monday, a little bit Tuesday, a little bit Thursday. And I think that that's a good compromise between having no idea of how this person programs and doing it in a way that still treats them like a human being that can't just guarantee an hour of consistent, clear thought to solve that problem, especially not when you're applying for a job. So my personal opinion is that I think they are good if you do them well, mm -hmm. mm. less pressure. Yeah, I think it also depends on what those coding challenges are. Like 
some companies really um, emphasize coding challenges that are like algorithmic stuff or mm. efficiency. They're big on that in America, I'll tell you that, yeah. like, especially in the games industry because, mm. I mean, games engines are very like physics-based, so mm. they, they really do expect you to be able to do algorithmic-based stuff, like big O notation kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it depends on what your job would involve. Um, whereas I think at Seek it's mainly around like modeling or how you would model your um, model or problem. And I think that that would be, I think that's appropriate given what we do every day. Can't say I do a lot of um, algorithmic <laughs> coding <laughs> in my everyday job. But I know like other tech companies, when I was applying for grad jobs, a lot of their coding challenges were that sort of mm. nature, which didn't really line up with what you would do in an everyday um, task. Like implement bubble sort. Yeah. <laughs> have I, I ever had to irrelevant. do? Yeah. yeah. Have I ever had to do a custom sorting thing? No. <laughs> That's and right. If I needed one, would I Google it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I won't Google? How to structure this very specific repos domain, you know, mm. logic. Yeah. Yeah. For that. I completely agree. I think yeah, it makes a lot more sense for to be assessing how someone structures code rather than you know how good they are at remembering a specific algorithm. algorithm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think people do have different um, strengths as well. I, I feel like the the talking part of the interview, some people can ace that. They're really good at ex explaining things. Uh, I know I can struggle with that sometimes, explaining more complicated topics. But code-wise, I do feel pretty comfortable. So sometimes I kind of don't mind going into the code bit, um, just kind of showing what I could do. Particularly if it's a take-home, I do like to kind of go that extra mile with the take-home take um, to kind of show where I, I you know, how I kind of work. Um <laughs> So, I, I, yeah, I think you kind of need to strike a balance between the two. Mm. Um, and, and actually, so the first comment actually was, so that I feel like that statement was perhaps a little dividing. Mm. Uh, and I thought this first comment was really interesting. If I will, I'll just read this. Uh, they're saying, in their opinion, we need to compare coding interviews to the alternatives. Should it just be a generic career interview, then it favors people who are more personal and provides greater opportunity for bias. Should people get take-homes? That's even more of a time commitment on part of the candidate. Should we de-emphasize the interview and rely more on experience than people who get bad jobs early in their career and trouble for life? Should we go for refer uh, referral referrals or letters of recommendations that encourage nepotism? Uh, I'm not saying that we should never use any of these things or that we should always use skill-based interviews. I think we just need to strike a balance between a lot of very imperfect options. But honestly, hiring just sucks and there is no silver bullet. Um, yeah. And I, I think I can kind of relate with some of that. I think that there, there are pros and cons on, on kind of both sides, whether whether you're doing a take home, whether you're just kind of doing, you know, just that uh, personal talking level. I think it's very hard to get an idea of how well someone's going to be at a job just from an interview. Actually, the first few few jobs I had, I, di I didn't have any take home tests uh, or, or just any coding tests at all. I'm just so personable and like <laughs> I, I'm very bubbly that they're like, yeah, he's good. Which I think perhaps when I first started, I probably should have done some sort of take homes. Like I, 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 I know it's very different now, but yeah, I remember I, I, I got the job somewhere and they just kind of trusted I knew what I was doing and they gave me some work I had no idea how to do. And uh, I think, and then since then they started doing take home tests because <laughs> they learn. <laughs> I think coding challenges for me at least, um, give you insight that I don't think you could really get out of just talking to someone, especially because people 
like ourselves can probably convince someone that we know something quite well. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, the, the practical application of that knowledge can be very different, right? Mm -hmm. What about you, Rena? Have you, have you had any um, tough interview challenges? The only ones I can remember were when I was applying for graduate jobs and not, no, I don't have that many experiences. Mm -hmm. It was a lot, a lot of like, um, what's it called? Codility type challenges, mm -hmm. so mini challenges, not really a big take home modeling question. Yeah. 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 I I, some of it's also like um, you, you learn on the job. Mm -hmm. So part of the interview process is to just figure out whether this is someone who can learn or has the basic fundamental skills to learn quickly. Um, That's right. Yeah, I guess it is. And the, I think the interview process changes depending on the experience of the mm. role you're going for. Yeah, I think one thing that this has sort of re reminded me about is when you're in that interview process and you're doing that coding challenge, especially if it's live, I don't imagine most companies are expecting like a complete solution. They're just observing how you do code, right? So I feel like the biggest thing anyone could do in that situation is just focus on the micro, mm -hmm. macro, micro, focus on the micro, just focus on the thing that you're doing. Don't worry about trying to solve the whole problem. Just do each piece well. And then that'll show through when like in their interpretation of your, pro of your, of your code, one, one really well-placed clean code architected function in a, in a domain can say a lot more than a bunch of ramshackle really quickly thrown together stuff to to complete the solution. Mm -hmm. I've been a part of some of the interviews here at Seek and we sometimes do a little bit of those uh, code exercises to, to kind of get an idea. And yeah, it is useful, but not the only thing in the interview. Mm. This one is another... Um, a quote from someone and uh, it's about burnout. Uh, so let's read this one. Um, Dev burnout drastically decreases when your team actually ships things on a regular basis. Burnout primarily comes from toil, rework and never seeing the end of projects. That is the quote. What are your thoughts? I think that that, that sounds like a reasonable interpretation of what burnout is. Mm -hmm. I mean... Speaking from where I was, you know, recently, um, coming towards the end of a very large, several-year-long project uh, that Seek's been running across the entire company, you do feel fatigue from just the same terms. Like you're talking about the same project, you're the same goals, the same outcomes. Even if on a micro level you're dealing with something very specific, the general fatigue over years will build up. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I. Yeah, I feel like change is something that can help stave off burnout, right? Like if the things that you're doing is changing frequently enough, then like what what would you be burning out on? I feel like burnout almost by definition is having to endure some challenges, the same challenge for too long. Mm -hmm. At least to me, that's what it feels like. Yeah, no, I was just looking up what, a, what job burnout involves and it talks about losing a sense of accomplishment or a loss of personal identity. I think... I think you don't have to ship something all the time to feel a sense of accomplishment, even just understanding something a bit better. Be like, oh, wait, actually, that's what it actually means in this business domain. Mm -hmm. You kind of learn a bit better or you get... And I think um, 
how you relate with your team also feeds into that sense of accomplishment when the team recognizes, oh, you've learned something, oh, you've um, um, made some progress in this area. I can't, yeah, can't think of any example off the top of my head. That could, I don't think it's just the work itself or like the amount of stuff that you put out, it's other factors like your team, um, what you're learning, whether you're getting recognised for it, um, that feeds into whether or not you're burning out, yeah. Have you guys felt any burnout recently or maybe maybe not recently? Yeah, I've felt it a few times over the years, I think. I I worked in IT for almost a decade before I started doing software development and I felt very much burned out by the time I got to there. I mean, that was one of the biggest motivators to go to uni, right, is to you get to a point where you're like, I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't do it for another 10, 15 years at least. Um but even, even working at Seek, I feel like um, the longer you, the, at least for me, the longer that I work in a domain, um, the less there is to learn about that domain mm-hmm. and the learnings become less frequent, fewer and far between and less impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for someone who's ambitious or someone who like is hu- hungry to, to grow and, and evolve um, rapidly all the time, then not having that constant um, challenge and excitement can be one factor that brings in burnout. But I feel like what you were saying before about um, like working with your team and stuff, it's not just about shipping stuff. I feel like just having any kind of victory or any kind of win can help stave yeah, off definitely. burnout. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean have, have to be shipping stuff. Like it could just be, you know, you've been challenged for the last quarter, the last three months where your team had constant prod issues, right? And your team just kept pushing change that broke stuff and that's you know you might be the senior in the team and so that weighed on you heavily and so the perception of your team to other teams was brought down by these things and so you're working hard to try and upskill the team try and figure out where you can plug different gaps that kind of thing so this is something that I've faced in the past and when you're not seeing um, those those incidents reduce and you're seeing the same behaviors that is another kind of burnout, right? And that's got nothing to do with shipping something. Like shipping something is not going to make that burnout go away. And that's equally as impactful as um, burnout from not working on a project for a long time or not getting to ship something on a long-lived project, right? So, yeah, I feel like I feel like it's a complicated thing that a lot of people probably will face at some point. Um, yeah, I feel like wins, I feel like victories is, is to me what always makes that feeling go away. And that could be learning a new thing, mm-hmm. helping someone overcome some challenge, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I recently did experience a bit of burnout. I actually just swapped teams, actually, uh, just this week. It's my, my first week of the new team. Exciting. Yeah, which has been great. And I, and I think I was just a bit burnt out from the previous work. And actually, I kind of related to this because it did feel like we weren't shipping, mm. you know, the final product. We've been working on what we were working on for the past, year year and a half and and it's it still isn't live and we've always had this like deadline of like this is the day um but we kind of got to that day and still it didn't feel like it was it was out there that people were using it yeah it, it was just it was a, just a, a, a tricky kind of project so um i kind of felt that and so i feel like swapping teams finding like now i feel like i am learning a lot more uh, whereas before I feel like more the person someone would come to for, uh, if they had questions, now I'm the one kind of asking the questions, which which really helps kind of enlighten that spark again in, in coding and, and development. Mm. I think 
Something that we talk about a lot in the grad program, if you're acting as a grad buddy or a grad supervisor, which for anyone who's not aware what that is, it's basically just two people who facilitate the role of your onboarding partner and your line manager, but while not actually be officially um, holding either of those titles. Uh, there's a Venn diagram of challenge that talks about um, trying to situate yourself in the um, comfortable discomfort, which is the overlap between the two parts of the diagram where um, something is too challenging or not challenging enough. You want something to be right on the edge of the of both, right? Where it's it's challenging enough that you're not comfortable. Because if you're not comfortable, if you're comfortable, you're not learning. I love that quote. If you're not comfortable, you're not learning. Because mm -hmm. at least for me, the more, I mean, there's a level of discomfort where the anxiety itself makes it harder to learn and you don't feel like you're making progress. You want to try and be in that zone of discomfort. If you're too far in the discomfort, you will burn out. If you're too far in the comfort, you will burn out, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's also like burnout isn't just, burnout isn't just about, um, you know, overcoming some challenge. It's not just about uh, having a victory or pushing some code. There's so many different things that can be causing you burnout. Perhaps it's also like what's meaningful to you when you're doing your work and you know, what sort of satisfaction or, or um, yeah, meaning that you find or like the impact that you're making depending on, yeah, it doesn't matter who, where, what that impact is on. Um, but if you find that satisfaction that then you're happy, you're not mm -hmm. burning out. I really like that actually because you've just reminded me that I was feeling really burned out uh, like two years ago right before I um, was promoted to senior and part of my burnout was not feeling accomplishment and mm -hmm. not like I could write down on paper where I've grown but I didn't, you know, I, you know, you don't feel recognition, that kind of thing. I, I, I actually felt that too and – See, sometimes they say a title's a title. It doesn't mean anything. But I, I kind of disagree on that. Like, I, it's I, a recognition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I'd like a gold medal sometimes when I, when I'm working really hard, and I, I feel like that title does help. Sometimes that, even sometimes that's enough to help with burnout. You've given me insight because I've recently started doing people management. So I'm, I'm now managing a few people, and I hadn't thought. I mean, it seems to be obvious now that I'm thinking about it. It's really important for me as a line manager to help those people not experience burnout and to try and keep them satisfied, right? Because you want them to stay in the role and continue to grow and learn so that you can build up your silo of subject matter experts. Understanding what drives them, and as I say this, it seems completely obvious, understanding what drives them and where they derive satisfaction is probably the one of the biggest things that I can do to help stave off burnout for them. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But, but also managing that for yourself. Like, do, do you find that hard to people manage and find what drives them while also keeping you, you know, keeping what drives you alive as well? Yeah, I mean, when people were asking me if I want to take on some line management, that was one of the big questions is like, is this something that I will derive satisfaction from? Yep. Will I experience burnout because it's detracting from the things that I want to do with my day? Um, I think as someone that is extroverted, it seems to me that I would naturally be something I would enjoy. It's surprisingly challenging. And I think the as I do this and as I go through the process of learning how to do line management, how to be a people manager, people leader, um, I'm starting to figure out what the reality of what actually motivates me from that perspective. Um, and it's not the things that I thought it was originally, but I can tell you there's a lot of um, there's a lot of positives that come from working closely with people and getting to see them like have those light bulb moments and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. It's definitely doing a lot for me in terms of staving off burnout. Mm -hmm. Before I was working at Seek, I was um, 
a tutor at RMIT mm. and I always knew that that was something that I would enjoy, like working with people and helping them learn and understand stuff because I was, I didn't study until I was halfway through my 20s. So most of the people I was studying with were younger than me and seeing people who are even older than me learn the things that I was learning and have those same like, aha, I don't, you know, I, I waited five years, but that's not going to stop me kind of moments. Yeah. Those are super satisfying for me. Actually, and speaking of like back to burnout, I think if burnout can get so far as that you're not enjoying something anymore, like a career change can sometimes do that. I know my partner has felt the same. Um, just kind of making a change into something else. And actually I've, I've worked with a developer here who they were um, – uh, they they used to not work in tech at all. I think they did, well, actually, maybe they did, like, um, data. And now they've moved into programming. And they were a little bit older. Like, they've had to go on and relearn, restudy. Like, but I, th- I think it shows that there's never that, that – there's never an age you can stop doing that. Like, you, your career isn't your career for the rest of your life. And something I felt is, like, d- is there a lifespan for your career in engineering? Well, I, f- I felt that, like, is there – I did at one point say like in five years time, I'm not going to be an engineer anymore. Like I feel like I, I will have outgrown it and I will perhaps have burnt out. Um, have you guys ever felt that? Like there's like, you know, in five years time, you'll still be doing this or, or kind of thought the opposite. Not really. No. Not really. Yeah. I have thought like maybe a side hustle. <laughs> yeah. I often think about wanting to, run some successful side hustle. Mm-hmm. I think it's less that I'm not as interested in programming as I was when I started. And it's just more that I have like a deep longing to build something for myself, build something of my own. Um, but I think I can, yeah, I think that I can say that I, I have over the years imagined where I would not be doing coding mm-hmm. really at all anymore. And to be honest, that's already where it's starting to lean towards as you start to move into people management Um as much as I want to try and fight it, yeah. you just, I don't have time. And most of the time when I, literally last week, I'd finished carding up some work. I sat down and I'd said to my line manager, oh, I'm going to do this card because I've got all the context. It doesn't make sense for anyone to pick it up. And then less than 12 hours later, I've got too much on my plate. Yeah. I need to hand it off to someone else. Yeah. So I'm probably already on that path, I think. Yeah, I don't think I'm there yet. Maybe it's because I'm a lot earlier in my career mm-hmm. compared to the both of you. Yeah. I got into tech accidentally. Like I, I haven't always wanted to be a programmer, like arts, media and all that. It's always been something I've wanted to pursue. It's just that coding was such a I, – I found enjoyment with it and it was also, you know, it, it kept my hobbies alive because it paid for everything. Um, but I, I guess I had that, that thought of maybe there's a lifespan on this engineering bit because I want to be able to focus on those other things at some other time. Um, but people manage can, management can really help with that. I find I'm very personal and I like to, I just like to talk with people. Uh, and that people management step, I think perhaps for me is my next place I want to get to. I think I'll, maybe I would imagine a lot of engineers can resonate with this. Not having to keep up to date with technology constantly sounds like a nice place to be. Mm-hmm, yeah. Being able to just absorb what I want when I want to and not have to make sure that I'm up to date. And if I miss something, it could be, you know, detrimental to my own growth. Like chat GPT, we talk about all the time, comes up in conversation <laughs> everywhere. Um, it came up in one of our meetings yesterday. We were going to, anyway, I won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, learning chat GPT and becoming com- competent at it and def- deferring to it when you need to quickly answer a question 
that's like a whole new skill set and it's perfectly reasonable. I've set it up, I've done it already, but it's not where I go to by default. And so as a software dev, you constantly have to be updating and shifting your natural behavior, not just staying up to date with technology, but actually changing your own processes because those those processes change rapidly. Yeah. In three years, you know, things change quite drastically. So, you know, looking forward to having other people tell me what's hot. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I think when I was uh, still at uni, I was an intern at a startup and one of the devs said, are you sure you want to go into software engineering? <laughs> You'll have to constantly upskill nonstop. And I was like, oh, interesting point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it can. It definitely feels like that. I feel like just not having been keeping up with some of my email digests, like I'm already way behind in what's new, what's happening. Chad GPT is something I know I'm, I'm behind on as well. It's uh, there's, there's just a lot to kind of keep up to date. And, and actually sometimes I feel like that it, that kind of affects some of my burnout. Like now I feel so behind that, uh, I don't know, is, is like I don't know if I can even reach to, to understand everything. Kind of is a bit overwhelming. Mm, do we need to? like be up to date all the time. I feel like for me, I learn things as I, I look into things really deeply when it comes up as a mm -hmm. need and work, especially that kind of drives me to, oh, I better learn this because it's coming soon. Yep. The Kubernetes is coming soon at Seek. Better learn how that works yep. <laughs> before it comes. But like personally, I'm not like, um, oh, this new technology is out, better go learn how to do it now. Because mm -hmm. even though, you know, no one else is using it yet. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that that's probably in that's probably a staff engineer's role, right? That's mm. what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. You reach that level where the expectation yeah, is that you're the person who is knows what to do or knows what to use yeah. next. Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. suggesting the new technology that's going to solve today's problems, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking. Like, I, I, if you know, if that's the next goal, and for, I guess for me, that's kind of my next goal. Yeah, be, being the one to be able to give people these ideas, these new things, you kind of have to stay up to date. Mm. And that can be tough. Yeah, I think the the constant learning thing probably isn't as true as it sounds or even as I feel when mm. I until I think about it in earnest. Um, I feel like those big like industry-wide shifts yeah, right. would be when the, the most learning challenge would come, at least for people like me. Mm. Yeah, I do feel comfortable kind of working on the technology sometimes that, that I like. But I guess being too comfortable means you get burnt out. <laughs> oh, we were still talking about burnout. Yeah, yeah, I, th I tried to bring <laughs> it back a little bit. <laughs> I was just thinking that I'm like, did we change topics? Yeah, yeah. I tried to be the Elliot there. He's always like, but what about burnout? What about burnout? No, good job. Well done. So that was burnout. I feel like burnout is, is very important for, for for devs to kind of manage and perhaps even your, your line managers as well to help you manage as well. The next kind of discussion is um, talking about coding language, like it being in English. Essentially, we're coding in in English all the time. And you guys were just kind of talking about this as we took our break. Uh, do you want to touch back on what you guys were saying? Right. Yeah, I, I was just sort of saying that um, I recommend this as a, as a career for a lot of people because the flexibility of hours, the pay is great. You can work anywhere in the world, right? Because 
all programming languages are in English. Someone's probably going to correct me, but as far as I know, all the, all the major languages are in English, right? Get on the Google. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking a quick look. <laughs> so like, um, and, and Rainer, you were saying that, like, what do people do if they're German and, or, you know, if they speak Mandarin, right, if they're mm. from China and they want to learn programming? English isn't the biggest language in the world. Like, we know that, right? Why is it that everyone is programming in English? It's yeah. kind of ties into why is English kind of like the main connecting language for the whole world? Yeah, I guess. Is it because IBM, Apple, Microsoft, we're all, is, is IBM an American company? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Right, so maybe it's just that because personal computers originated in mm. English-dominant country. Yeah, mm. actually from here it says, the, this is on Wikipedia. Um, so, yeah, according to HOPL online database of languages, out of the 8,500 plus programming lang languages recorded, which is an astounding amount of languages. 8,000? Yeah. Roughly 2,400 of them were developed in the United States, 600 in the UK, 160 in Canada, and 75 in Australia. Wow, that's more than I thought in Australia. So yeah, over a third of all programming languages were developed in countries where English is the primary language. So there are two thirds of languages out there that aren't in English. Is it? Yeah. Are they not in English? Or are they just not created in English-speaking, English-first language countries? Um, oh, yeah, it point. says based on non-English languages. Yeah, there's a, there's a few of them. Jeem is an Arabic one. Sharscript um, is Bengali. Uh, Wenyan, Chinese basic is a Chinese one. Yeah, there, there's, there are Hack quite idea. a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would assume the concepts would kind of be the same and just kind of the lettering and keyboard would just kind of be different. Like instead of I, it's qui or something like that. The ordering. I find the order ah. of things. Because I, I had to learn, man well, not had to, I learned Mandarin <laughs> when I was growing up. And the order, like, what's the what's the term for it? The sentence structure is mm. kind of like the other way around. Ah. So it kind of sounds more like, you know, when Baby Yoda speaks. Yeah, because <laughs> Japanese is like that, right? Yeah. They, they do like the subject before the verb first or so, uh -huh. I'm butchering it people would know better than me um but yeah the that's something that's always i found really interesting as an anime enthusiast mm -hmm. watching like now that i have like a very very rudimentary uh understanding of japanese you pick up on keywords and you're like wait a minute they're saying their name last but the translation is in like the opposite order mm -hmm. because they they give you here's the subject first and then here's my opinion about the subject rather than being like i really hate the thing mm -hmm. they'll say the thing i hate that Mm. So why are there are there languages that program like that? That's what I'm. I don't know. About. Now I'm like, so do they assign value equals the the variable name mm -hmm. rather than the typical way of variable name equals? Yeah, like value. I'm, I'm making this thing and I'm going to call it that, yeah. rather than I'm going to call it that and it's one of these things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think actually, have, has anyone seen code that has? perhaps been written somewhere else with like the codes in English, but the comments are in a different language. Oh, yeah. Not yet. No, I've seen that. Yeah. I, I, I think perhaps more when I was doing like WordPress code and they'd kind of get uh, developers overseas to help out. Yeah. You would see like code and they would be explaining some of the code in, in yeah, foreign language. I thought I, I, I can un barely understand the code. And now I can't even like understand the comments. I, mm. Yeah. But it definitely happens, I guess, like for them to be able to interpret, maybe if English is not their first language, like mm. for them to be able to explain the English code, these comments kind of help them. Yeah, I mean, even 
we writing in English speaking developers mm-hmm. writing English code, we also leave English comments to yeah. help each other out. So that's right. Apparently, there are languages that are symbolic programming languages. One of them is called APL, and uh, it's not very podcast friendly to to even <laughs> try to describe what the code looks like. But you can imagine um, imagine a very complex algebraic equation. Everything is symbols. Wow, that's They're like wing windings. What's that font on? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like windings. It's like Whoa. coding in windings because well. I feel like these are actually mathematical operations because I can see some like math symbols and stuff. Like there's okay. a tilde, there's the like the the big curvy E, there's a circle, wow. there's a cross. <laughs> keep going, Seamus, keep going. <laughs> there's a slash <laughs> and there's also arrows, but not like not like arrows like we're we're talking about, like classic uh Street Fighter D pad arrows. Mm-hmm. All the symbols. I'm actually just trying to find ah, oh, here we go. Here's I found an example. This one's called Doolittle. That looks um, like Japanese. It, yeah, it's a Japanese programming language. And look, I, I can't un- understand it. But yeah, it, it's just Japanese characters. Ooh, notice the um, punctuation. That would also be different. Oh, the full stops, yeah? Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, so I know that commas don't exist in the Thai language. And mm-hmm. I only know this because of the invocation work we've mm-hmm. done recently. But yeah, I think... Some of these um, punctuation that we use, like semicolon, commas, and full stops, mm-hmm. doesn't exist in every language. Yeah, this has blown my mind. It's really interesting seeing, yeah, if you get a chance, I know you're listening on a podcast, but if you get a chance to, so this one is called Doolittle, uh, you can see some of the program examples. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting to see. And actually, this doesn't really look like regular code with like if statements or anything like that. I'm not sure how that would work. but Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go through the effort of making a programming language that was more ideal for you, for your na- native language, would you really take the conventions from mm. English? Maybe those conventions exist because of the English language, mm-hmm. like the structure of the programming, right? Mm. And that's why it doesn't look like the same kind of code structure that you, you'd be familiar with, right? Yeah. Now that I think about it, I'm like, the statement that I made at the start, which is all programming languages are English, aren't they? Like, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Why would they be? Why would there not be a language that's not in English? Like, why would everyone just subject themselves to having to write in a language that they're not comfortable with? Yeah. Is that a step too far? Find out next time on Seek Bytes. <laughs> that was great. But I think there were a lot of topics there we, we weren't experts on, but I think we, we learned a lot from each other, and I hope everyone listening learned a little bit from us as well. You've been listening to Seek Bites. I'm Will. I'm Seamus. And I'm Raina. And we will catch you next time on the podcast. Mm-hmm.